You're listening to Electrician Live with your host, Paul Abernathy. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Electrician Live. My name is Paul Abernathy, your host as always, and I want to thank you for taking the time to come to our podcast videocast every Saturday night at 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. Well, we got a great show tonight. Tonight's show is a show that was done. Now, it is not live, except for I am here with you commenting. Uh, but it was based on a, um, a, a interview that we had a couple weeks back between me and Jeffrey Mort of Three Phase Radio. And I was a guest on his show. And we were talking about three significant changes for both residential and commercial that was going to impact the electrical industry, not only electrically co-driven, but also economically. So we had a really good show, and um, he's, it's uh, available also in a podcast version up on uh, Jeffrey Mort's uh, website at threephaseradio.com, so make sure you check him out. Um, great guy. We had a nice conversation, and I just wanted to let you in and let you be a part of that conversation because I captured the, we captured the video of it, and we wanted to bring that to you. So that's what this show is all about. So hang tight, and I uh, hope you enjoy the show, and I'll catch you at the end. All right. Well, today we are joined by our special guest, Mr. Paul Abernathy. And Paul is a electrical, national electrical code expert and also the host of Master the NEC podcast, as well as the weekly show over on YouTube, Electrician Live. So, Paul, welcome to Three Phase Radio. And if you could share something interesting about yourself that most people don't know. Well, it's good to be here. Um, yeah. Uh, I guess about me, uh, most of the information about me is pretty open book. If you go on Google, uh, don't believe all you, all you read, but you know, you can believe most of it. Um, I've been around for over 30 years in the electrical industry. I guess what most people would not know uh, about me is I get a question a lot. I'm teaching code classes all the time or our educational programs at Electrical Code Academy. And they say, are you an electrician? <laughs> I get that, you know, do you just teach it or are you an electrician? I said, well, uh, it's pretty easy to go to websites for the different states. Uh, I started my career, some, what most people don't know, is that I started my career in Virginia. Uh, and I was Virginia's youngest licensed electrician ever by winning the National VICA contest and was able to petition the locality to allow me to test for the license, which I was two years younger than the requirement. Um, but they figured I would fail, so they let me take it. And, of course, obviously, I, I nailed it. And then a year later, I went back for the master's, and they said, you're too young. And I said, oh, well, this, the rules state that you, the age only applies to journeymans. There is no age requirement for the master. All you had to do was have a one-year journeyman license. So that kind of hiccuped them a little bit. So um, I was able to they forced their hand, and so I was able to get my master's. So what people probably don't know is, is, is that I st still remain the youngest licensed electrician and master in the state of Virginia, uh, probably one. Um, the other thing they might not know is uh, I have owned multiple electrical contracting businesses through the years, and so I've done commercial, residential, industrial, motor control, uh, controls, all that type of stuff at different aspects through the years. So... Um, I just ventured into the codes early on in my, in my career. So that might be some things they don't know. 
That's awesome. Thanks for sharing. And, you know, it's, it's amazing that um, how diversified our, our trade is. You know, you can either be a contractor, you can be an educator, or you can make a living uh, just out of the National Electrical Code book in each and every cycle. So, sure. um, you know, that's awesome that you bring that expertise and value, uh, you know, to the electricians across the United States of America. Yeah. So we appreciate what you do. So today, Paul, uh, Paul's going to be bringing us his expertise as far as the top three changes for the 2020 National Electrical Code and the top three changes in residential and the top three changes in commercial. So, Paul, I'll let you take it away sure. and, uh, and share those top three changes with our audience. Okay. Well, when we say we have to keep relevant, when we say top three changes, it, it all has perspective of how they apply to the individual because, you know, these might not be the top three changes that impact you and your market, uh, but as is kind of in the context of the of the show, they're going to be changes that are going to impact your your wallet uh, in immediately, and obviously that translate to the end user, and that's going to translate to the, the you know the, the customer's wallet, you know that type of thing. So, um, so we've got some changes that we can look at that that effectively will increase the cost of doing business. Uh, and, and the first one that we look at is in, in the National Electrical Code, and again, we're talking the 2020 edition, is the extensive changes that took place, and we're doing residential, is 210.8, which is GFCI requirements for the protection for personnel. So significant changes that took place in, in this section is that, first of all, in the general statement, or what we like to refer to as the charging statement, there was a change on how you actually measure the distance that's going to be listed in a lot of the 210.8a requirements. In other words, like bathrooms, garages, outdoor. And so in the 2017 code, the measurement would literally stop at a doorway or a door. So to give a best example, and I'll give you two to kind of quantify the significance of the change, is in the 2017 code, if you had a receptacle under the sink in a kitchen and you're measuring and you need to have GFCI protection within six feet of a sink, that's in accordance with 210.88A, uh, item number seven. And in that requirement, you had a measurement. And if it actually, there was a door on that cabinet, it literally would stop the measurement at that door. So the receptacles underneath the sink, which would be within six feet of the top inside edge of the sink, would not have to be GFCI protected. Now, this was required in 2014, changed in 2017, and now that we're back in the, you know, getting into the 2020, the door or doorway was removed. Uh, and so that was a theoretical break in the measurement requirement. The other change that was important is at doorways. So, for example, if I had a master bathroom and it adjacent to the master bedroom, and there was a receptacle just around the corner as you went through the threshold from the master bath into the master bedroom, then if that receptacle was within six feet of the top inside edge of the sink that's in the bathroom, then it would require GFCI protection, even though it would have been on the bedroom circuit and not the circuit that serves the countertop inside of a bathroom. So that was significant in removing that. Um, but as far as the changes, so that was just kind of setting the tone as far as the changes, a significant change in the 210.8A for dwelling units, uh, which was the removal of the 15 and 20 amp requirement. In other words, it only applied to 15 and 20 amp rated receptacles. That has been removed 
for the 2020. It now applies to all 125 volt through 250 volt receptacles. That's going to be significant in cost because now it's going to push things like, depending on where they're located, ranges. If it's in a kitchen and it just happens to have that receptacle within six feet of the sink, it's going to require GFCI protection now, and that's 240-volt receptacle rated at a NEMA 250-volt. Uh, again, significance 240 being the actual circuit, 250 being the rating of the device itself. A quick tip for people out there, anytime you see something that says 125 or 250, you know they're talking about a device. When you see something that says 120, 240, you know they're talking about the branch circuit or the circuit itself. So if you're dabbling through the code, that kind of help you not make sure you're not in the wrong place. Um, so of that change, there was a couple things that were really significant that's going to add cost is item number five. So that would be 210.8A5 for those that happen to be following along in their code book. It used to say unfinished basements required the GFCI protection for those receptacles. Well, that changed in the 2020, which is going to increase the cost because now all receptacles that are rated 125 through 250 in basements, finished or unfinished, are going to require GFCI protection now. So the concept here was if it flooded, then you got a, a unsafe condition. Uh, so they removed that unfinished, which nobody really could define what unfinished was. Um, a lot of people get decorative concrete. Was, did that mean that it had to have gypsum board, but the ceiling had to be closed in, or could the ceiling be open? So again, it was just across the board, just said, let's just apply it to basements. In uh, that change also, when it comes to cost, when it comes to residential, um, they added another location to the list, and that is now indoor damp and wet locations. Now, this could apply, for example, if you had a mudroom that had a sprayer, so maybe it has a dog wash station, and the jurisdiction could basically determine that that area with a floor drain is a indoor damp or wet location. If that's the case, receptacles located in those locations are now going to require uh, GFCI protection for those. Now, one other significant thing that's not so much an added cost, but an exception to certain locations and that was the addition of a new product, which was basically had an attachment fitting and a receptacle. A couple cycles ago, we changed the definition of receptacle uh, because it was more than just the receptacles that me and you are familiar with. Uh, it's, it was now it is a, a more or less a female mating type of component. It is a receptacle, but now you have what's called an attachment fitting, which we have a definition for now in the 2020 in case you're confused. Um, and these mate together to support things like luminaires that are heavy or ceiling fans. Well, the significant change here is to say, you know what, those don't have to be GFCI protected because nobody's going to be plugging things into those in these areas where they give exemptions to. So that is an allowance uh, for that not to be GFCI. And these are unique receptacles. They're not the same ones that you would have around that you would put an attachment plug in. So don't confuse those. However, if this was a unique design that also had a luminaire connected to it that had a receptacle built into it, then that receptacle has to be GFCI protected. So it kind of um, makes the other aspect of it moot because then you'd still have to put GFCI protection on it. So that would raise the cost of that. So uh, that is the, the, the first one. So you're going to see more GFCI requirements. And the significance of this is let's take a basement. If you put your dryer in a basement and that's 240 volt, 
it is now going to have to be GFCI protected because you're going to plug that into a 30 amp 250 volt rated receptacle. Um, anywhere in this list of locations that you're going to put something that has a receptacle that's going to be 125 through 250 is going to require GFCI protection now. So that does increase uh, the cost from that perspective. So it sounds like a lot of these uh, changes for the GFI, uh, GFCI protection in dwelling units uh, really closes the loop on some of the variables that used to be out there as far as what's covered, what's not covered, all in the, um, you know, in, in, with the intention of public safety, keeping people safe from electrocution through ground fault. Sure. And, you know, we, as, as a list grows and grows and grows, everybody wants to add. And again, it's, it's 15 and 20 amp, but the, the concept here to the code making panel uh, was that, you know, the hazard's the hazard. It doesn't matter whether it's 30 amps, 40 amps, 50 amps, 15 amps, 20 amps. If the hazard's there, then it needs to be addressed. And that's what they address, trying to address with this. Sure. Um, so where does that fall into outdoor receptacles? I see boathouses on the list. Um, mm -hmm. And my, my thought goes to like uh, an RV or a camper outlet outside prior, um, because those were typically 30 amps that uh, they didn't have to be GFCI protected or am I wrong there? Um, well, outdoor for the, for the dwelling application, you know, up in 550, you have your own rules they're going to deal with. So Chapters one, two, and three, and four, in the case, obviously, this case, we're in uh, 210, so we're in chapter two. Those are general requirements. So, so chapters one through four are generally applied throughout the NEC. So for dwelling applications, the outdoor would, would apply. However, when you get up into chapter five for 550, for example, mobile homes and, and things like that, they're going to have their own rules that can modify or supplement anything that would be down in chapter one through four. So they have their own rules for requirements of GFCI protection as well, which kind of go into scope of what they're dealing with. So, and, and there was some changes there, but again, not within so much residential driven for that. Okay. Uh, so back to the kitchen scenario with mm -hmm. your range, um, does, does the new code change require um, all within the kitchen or is it just, does it go back to that six foot rule, six feet within the sink? Now, so the general rule in the kitchen is all countertops, all receptacles that serve the countertop are required to have GFCI protection. These, that, and that's, you know, that's been around for quite a while. The, the six foot within the sink application has been around for a while as well. So that's really nothing new. The only new change here was in the scope of the uh, charging statement, which was how to do the measurement uh, so that it doesn't penetrate. Um, so by changing the, the requirement from 15 and 20 amp to 125 through 250, it moved it away from impacity driven to device driven for receptacles. So if that is a 50 amp range receptacle, 40 amp range receptacle, and it happens to be within six feet of the top inside edge of the sink, which is every sink in the dwelling, not just kitchen sink, then it would be required to be uh, GFCI protected. The other receptacles that don't serve the counter are those that are not within six feet of the top inside edge of the sink are not going to be required for GFCI protection. So most of the time your range is probably going to be outside of that scope. But if it isn't, then you're going to have to GFCI protect it and we'll let, uh, we'll let the local electricians argue with the inspectors over achieving that deal. So, 
So that could be an angle to, you know, save a couple of dollars or, you know, significant amount of money on a, a 50 amp GFCI circuit breaker for your range. If you have, uh, before you bid on the project, you know that your uh, kitchen design has the range outside of that six foot measurement from your sink, or you could coordinate with your builder or your homeowner uh, with the custom kitchen design to make sure that that happens to save them, you know, give them a little bit of cost savings and give some back to the client. Yeah, I, I would say most cases for your standard one in, one family dwellings, normal dwellings, this is probably going to be the case, just proximity. Um, but where you have to watch it is that what many people forget is that 210.8a also applies to the individual dwelling units in a multifamily building where the building itself might fall under commercial codes, but the individual dwelling units are going to kick you back into the 210.8 requirements. And of course, their space is a premium, right? So you had these small efficiency kitchens and boom, now you've got the problem and people have to think about it. Okay, so if you're a larger contractor and you're, you're bidding on a, a multi-unit dwelling uh, construction project and you miss that in your bid, you're not figuring an extra, you know, what's a, a 50 amp GFCI circuit breaker. It's got to be over $100 compared to, you know, 20 bucks for a regular uh, you know, 50 amp circuit yeah, breaker. Prices that's, can vary. Yeah. But that's you're going to have to eat it. Significant yeah. cost impact to you when the inspector comes back in at the end and says, Hey, uh, where's this, where's this impl implemented code update? Yeah. Can hit you. Definitely. Absolutely. Definitely. So you have to think about it because again, basements, people have dryers in there, laundry rooms. So the laundry areas are in the list for GFCI protection. So typically that would have only, you know, applied to the, uh, if it was 1520 amp, it would have only applied to the washing machine and associated receptacles in that room. Not anymore. It's going to apply to that dryer as well now. So that dryer is going to be GFCI protected. So again, it's just, just costs you have to think about. It is. And you also have to, you know, sell that. Not all builders out there are uh, open to, you know, accepting, um, you know, price increases on the electrical the electrical installations, I remember back when I was a contractor, um, you know, AFCIs were coming into play, code updates, and then copper was going through the roof. And I was going to these builders saying, you know, hey, these, these costs are going to go up for the prices of wire in your home. And other contractors, other electrical contractors that were bidding on the work weren't up to date on their code updates and they were still bidding at a lower price. So I was getting questioned by the builder on why my prices was going up and uh, were going up and, and the other contractors were not. Yep. Definitely. All right, Paul. So uh, what's next in the residential world here for 2020 code updates? Okay. So the, the next item that's probably something that's been done around the country anyway, depending on where you're at and the, the severity of potential lightning strikes and surges, uh, is that in the 2020 code, we now have a 230.67. So it's section 67 of 230, which is services is going to require surge protection on one and two family uh, dwelling applications. So we probably have done this for years. My home has one. If you live in Florida, you probably have one. Uh, it's different surges and spikes that can come in on the system, which doesn't necessarily have to be from lightning. It can be surges that come in from a high powered line that gets in contact with the low powered line, uh, or it can come from a maybe a substation transfer that, that causes a reverberation of a certain amount of um, energy back into the system. But what other people sometimes don't realize, and the kind of the driving force from this change, was that you can have a lot of surges that originate from within the dwelling itself. 
And so the, the movement here for this, for one and two family dwellings, and that's is all that it applies to now, is that you have so many sensitive electronic equipment components that are in a house now, whether it's the AFCIs, GFCIs, uh, any type of smoke alarm systems, or anything that we're relying on for, for safety could be impacted by surges. Now, typically, devices for surges will have what's called an MOV, metal oxide varistor, acted like a kind of a surge absorption sponge, if you want to keep it simple. Uh, and they have a specific lifespan on those. Uh, GFCI's devices are, are typically uh, utilizing these type of circuitry. Uh, and so we've had many changes in GFCI's that have end-of-life notices and lights and identifiers that tell you when, when things, or they don't reactivate when they've, uh, become uh, damaged by an excessive amount of surge and things like that. But when it comes to electronics, now everybody will say, well, Paul, what does this have to do with safety because you're worried about your $2,000 plasma TV burning up? Uh, the reality is that this was driven more to the fact that we have plenty of uh, devices or things that we rely on inside of our structure that the surges can take out or cause to, to work improperly. So this was driven to that type of change. Now, 230.67 is basically broken down into four subdivisions. Uh, uh, so it's a, an A, a B, a C, and a D. And basically, it's going to say that all services supplying dwelling units shall be provided with a surge protective device, and we refer to those as SPDs. Uh, incidentally, there was a code change there and now in Article 242 instead of 285 and 280, uh, which was dealing with lightning arresters and surge protective devices. So now it's kind of aligned itself with what's called overvoltage, and it's right after overcurrent protective devices in 240, so it kind of aligns itself for the electrician to, to find it a lot easier. Um, now, the location that these are going to be allowed uh, is going to be on the supply side or the line side of the service disconnect. That's usually a type one SPD. And then you have those that are integrated into the panel or on the load side of the service disconnect, and they're going to be type two. Uh, there's an exception that allows you to have the SPD downstream to a remote distribution panel as well, um, which is probably what a lot of people do if they have the outside emergency disconnect. And now they and we'll talk about that one in a minute but they might have a remote distribution panel inside, which many people refer to as a sub panel, uh, but where they're not, we're not talking about a sub, we're talking about a remote distribution panel. So there's accepted terminology and slang versus what it really is. And so you could have it there as well. So there's allowances for where you locate this device uh, and it's all covered in 230.67. But the one important thing is, is replacement. When we have a service upgrade on an existing dwelling, uh, or we're doing new installation, this is one of the few times in the National Electrical Code that is kind of a retroactive type of thing. So when you do a service change or upgrade or replacement, this is going to kick in and you're going to have to have these SPDs, surge protective devices installed. Uh, they can range from increased costs from uh, $125 up to four and $500 for these devices, but they're designed to protect from the inside as well as the outside when it comes to surge protection. But you have two options here in, in how you can utilize these. 
Excellent. And uh, especially when it comes to life safety and protecting, you know, if a surge comes and wipes out, um, you know, all of your smoke detectors, your fire protection devices in your home, uh, this is significantly important. And also, you know, in regards to the surge protected devices, it was always something I used to wire a lot of custom homes and it was always an option that I would uh, give to my clients with that particular explanation that it's, you know, not only is it uh, protecting your life safety devices, but it's also protecting you uh, from wiping out your you know, all your electronics in your home as well. Sure. And, and and I think the other misconception that people have with an SPD is that, you know, they're the whole house. They're really designed to tech, to, to protect the components within the house that are integrated into the electrical system. Like, you know, you, we're spending now 1200 bucks to 1500 bucks to $3,000 on smart refrigerators. And how are we really protecting those? And I mean, you could say, Oh, okay, it's just a product. Well, take now where the economy was great and now it's where it is with the COVID thing. And and nobody wants to be able to just have to dish out $3,000 for a new TV. So it can be a level of insurance. And a lot of these SPDs have their own warranty programs that are part of the SPDs, depending on what manufacturer you get it from. But we also have to remember that this is a two-tiered approach that most people don't realize is that this is protection at the panel uh, on the supply side or the load side. You have a choice. But you also need protection locally at certain things like computers and high dollar TVs because you basically think about it as a, as a reservoir and a dam. When a surge comes in, it fills the reservoir to a certain point. If you get an excessive amount, it's going to overflow the dam if the dam is not designed to mitigate out some of this overflow. And so that's basically what a surge protection device does. It shunts this to the grounded conductor, which tries to shunt it in order to reduce this amount. But it can be overtaken and that allows a certain amount of current to get over the threshold and can get to your sensitive electronic equipment. So we usually recommend two levels of protection, primary and then the secondary uh, at the actual equipment that is, again, relative to cost. The quickest thing to burn up in a house is the thing that costs the most. So again, two-tiered approach, but for your refrigerators, your washing machines, and all those electronic equipment, this is a good move from that part economically, but it is going to raise a cost in yeah, you know, something people be aware of. Sure, uh, but a small price to pay compared to replacing, you know, just one appliance or one component, uh, let alone uh, an entire houseful. Absolutely, absolutely. And you can have your home warranty plan, but then you have to sit there and argue with them that that's an act of God and they don't want to cover it under their plan. So it's it's better to just be prepared than it is to try to argue if you have like a home shield or you have some other program that supposedly is a protection. Uh, from a person who has been involved in those programs for years and have taught about them and what to do and what not to do. Uh, and you just got to read the fine print. So it better to be safe. And so I think it's a good move, even though some people will argue it's just cost driven. I would argue that it is, there's a lot of safety involved in it as well. Again, surges can do a heck of a lot of damage to your system. So uh, I think it's a good safety thing. Absolutely. I've had one on my own home since uh, 2003. Now, it makes me wonder if uh, insurance companies are offering any type of discount because obviously if you lose an entire house full of electronic components, washers, dryers, refrigerators, televisions, smoke detectors, all that stuff, um, your homeowner's insurance might cover that. Whereas if you have protection for that, uh, maybe they're offering some sort of a, a certified discount. And, and they might, you probably want to check with your, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, interesting as you, you say smoke detectors in reality in homes, there's smoke alarms, smoke detectors connect to a monitoring system, but that's interesting because, you know, people do interchange those. 
Um, they won't probably do anything for you. Uh, but, you know, if you contact your insurance, they might have some type of rider the same if you're located a certain distance from a fire hydrant or you're lo- if you have a burglar alarm or, or some type of system. They might. I think the biggest thing is a lot of these companies that have these SPDs uh, are larger companies uh, like Eaton and uh, uh, Schneider, uh, which many people refer you know, know as Square D, and then the other Eaton would be Cutler Hammer. Uh, they offer these devices, and they have a pretty hefty warranty on them as well. So they do protect things that are connected to it. Now, again, validating that, trust me, they can tell. Being on the forensic side of, of a manufacturer, which I am, uh, we can tell whether somebody hooked something up right or not. And, you know, many people have complaints about certain things, and, and the manufacturer steps in, and we can find out that they're f- full of crap. And, you know, so, you know. Just do it right, and, and they do have warranties. But, yeah, you could probably reach out and might have something. Awesome. So what's next on the residential front? Okay, so the next one, which is probably the one of the bigger impacts, depending on where you're at in the country, uh, is the emergency disconnect requirement under 230.85. Now, again, this one is driven to one- and two-family dwelling units, uh, and 230.85 is basically going to require – that you have a disconnection means, and of course it's gonna have an appropriate short circuit current rating and our rating if it has an overcurrent device in it uh, for that available fault current, and it needs to be installed in a readily accessible outdoor location now. So in the past, we could come from a weather head down to a meter and then go straight out of the back of the meter into the panel uh, if it was directly on the other side of the wall. Uh, and that way we limited the amount of service conductor that went into the building because, again, 230.70A1 is going to limit that length. Um, it varies by jurisdiction. But if you're a purist of the code, it's basically outside or nearest point of entry. <laughs> the moment it pops through the wall, that's the nearest point of entry. So, again, jurisdictions look at it differently. But that is what's been done pretty common around the country. Uh, so now the change that tried to make its way into the 2017 code, but it did not make it into the code, uh, because it did not have 100% of the support from the fire industry, even though they were the ones that brought it up. And it's the emergency responders and folks like that who really said, look, what is the options when we get to a building? And if it's a dwelling unit, one and two family, and which typically is not going to have fire sprinkling systems and things like that that you have with multifamily. So that's why people ask why it's one and two family. It's the most at risk, by the way. And they're going to say, how do we address this? So the typical thing is brute force. The firemen come and they take a hatchet and they either bust off the meter or try to disconnect. And so you have all this potential still uh, hazards that are involved. And so the concept here was to provide an emergency disconnect outside at a readily accessible location, understanding we all know what readily accessible means, able to reach quickly without climbing over or climbing under and without the need for anything like a tool to get to it. Um, And so we have three options now in order to be able to achieve this uh, required outside disconnection means. Now, of the three options, one of them is, could be as simple as taking a NEMA 3R enclosure, instead of it being inside, install it outside directly below the meter. And if that's the case, that's your option, and that can serve what? That can serve as your service disconnect. You got your main breaker in there. And it can serve as the emergency disconnect. So it serves double duty, and you're good to go. You change over to a four conductor, and you put your interior panel or whatever you want anywhere else in the dwelling, or you take all of your branch circuits or additional feeders out of that panel on the exterior. 
and you're fine and you meet the rule. And a lot of parts of the country, they do that already. So this is not new for them. Although the concern was that, that vandals would come and open up the panel and do all that kind of stuff. But you can put a lock on it. It's still considered accessible to those that need to get to it. So it's not an issue. But that would meet the rule and that's not, you know, that's okay. And that's what people have done all around the country. Now, the next one is when you install a meter disconnect. Now, typically not something that we did that much for residential. It's very common in commercial, obviously, to have the meter to be pulled uh, under a make or break scenario. So in a, in a big commercial building or industrial, um, you never know from a standpoint of responders what would happen if you pulled that meter while there's loads running inside of the actual building, which could create a large arc in an unsafe condition at that disconnection moment? Um, so that's big in commercial. Really wasn't that big in residential, okay? And so when it comes to the emergency disconnect, it's simply saying that we'll give you the option to install a meter disconnect. And of course, this is all listed in the options of everything that can be connected on the supply side of a service disconnect. In 230.82, you have a list of all the things that can be on the supply side of your service disconnect, okay? It, it's a full list. And of course, the meter disconnects are listed there under item three. Now, caveats to this and with all of these is now you have to label them as emergency disconnect. And in the first one that I gave example, where it was a panel with the main breaker, which is like a NEMA 3R enclosure, you'd have to label it as emergency disconnect and service disconnect. Well, with the meter disconnect, uh, it allows it to be on the supply side. And typically this would be on the line side of the meter. So it kind of makes sense. Uh, it doesn't really state where it really needs to be, but typically you'd put it on the line side. So you kill the power and they can safely pull the meter. Um, but you do have to label it as emergency disconnect, meter disconnect, and you have to make sure it's clear. It says on there, not service equipment. So you have three different things that you must label on there to make it very clear. Now, the importance of this is it's not a service disconnect. You don't treat it like a service disconnect in a sense that you create a disconnect and now you're going to separate off and get four conductors and you're going downstream and that becomes, because that's not your service equipment. Okay, that's not your service disconnect. That is simply a disconnect to kill power. It's basically a pass-through, just like a meter is a pass-through. Now, you still have to bond it and meet all those requirements for bonding it, and typically you can use the grounded conductor to bond all metal parts. The code allows that in 250.142. That's common to do that. But that's allowing that disconnect to meet this rule if you want to do that. Okay, Probably not the one that most are going to do. Um, now, the third option allows for other listed disconnect switches or circuit breakers on the supply side of each service disconnect that are suitable for use as service equipment or SUSE rated, S-U-S-E. Okay, and that's what's suitable for use as service equipment, actually the acronym that we typically use for that. And it's still gotta be marked emergency disconnect and not service equipment so that we don't misconstrue that as service equipment, even though it has to be rated for suitable for use as service equipment, that allows the connection between the grounded conductor uh, to the actual enclosure, and that's all the things that we bond that are acceptable uh, in 250.142. So you have three options here to do this, but you're obviously going to have to have the uh, emergency disconnect now moving forward unless your jurisdiction amends it out. 
So just be aware of that and, and all the marking requirements and the labels. And of course, they got to be suitable for the environment. No ink jets, no handwritten, whatever. They have to be substantial, whether it's a, a phenolic label or a metal label or something that's going to stand the test of time. So that's kind of one of the issues with that. So it's going to raise cost if you get a separate other listed disconnect. That's going to raise it two, three, four, five, six hundred bucks. If you go with the NEMA 3R exterior, then it might not raise it that much. But now you're going to have to either add a secondary panel or you got to equate for all your circuit conductors coming out of that exterior panel. So it just it's going to raise costs, but it, it's a safety driven thing. So that leads me to wonder um, where, the, where the line's drawn as far as, you know, repairs go on an exterior service for a dwelling unit. If somebody was to come and just replace the service riser, a lot of times the service riser gets damaged from a falling tree or it's just weathered or something along those lines. At what point when you touch that, you know, service riser or if you have to replace a meter socket it, just by itself from water damage or something along those lines, um, when you might have to install one of those. Yeah, I think that the, the key with this was you probably need to, to work with your local AHJ uh, under this application because unlike the previous one, I, I don't believe that there is any statement in there of a retroactive application. Um, but I think that many states, let me give you an example of Virginia. Uh, Virginia does, has what's called a like-for-like like rule. If you replace something like for like, and they agree that it's like for like, then you don't have to change anything. Uh, it's just a like for like application. Um, if you do an upgrade service change to upgrade to a larger, then they might consider it an, a new installation. Of course, if it's a new installation, then it's gonna have to meet these, these rules and these requirements. So again, uh, nothing's to take the place of definitely checking with your local AHJ. And again, states amend the NEC to, to something I think that they shouldn't. Uh, followed what the experts say, but the states love to take ownership and, uh, you know, they have their own rules. So just be aware of it. But yeah, it could be something that comes into play depending on how your state or how your jurisdiction determines that upgrade or that change as a new installation. Sure. If there's any question, uh, by all means, you know, reach out uh, ahead of time before the installation or before the work's done uh, to the local authority having jurisdiction. The other thing that comes to mind here with this 23085 change is um, this would have saved me a lot of um, sleepless nights back in the late 1990s when I was a municipal wiring inspector. And I used to get fire calls all the time from the uh, building department, police department, and fire department when they would go to a house fire. And me being that AHJ back then, I would get the call to go and determine whether or not power needs to be shut off to the dwelling unit uh, in order for the firefighters to proceed. Um, so back to your statement, when they would you know, do the dangerous task of uh, pulling the meter themselves or trying to cut the service wires themselves because they thought it was a, a risk or letting the fire continue with electrocution hazards going on. Uh, while they waited for the power company to come and disconnect. It's just a lot easier for them to go over there and, you know, open the cabinet or throw the handle on the disconnect. And, and now there's no power going to the dwelling unit. Yeah, I think that the, the biggest thing for me when, when I was on the co-panel and, and we heard the argument for this, and, and I was all for it in the 2017, it just didn't have enough support. And you have to understand how the co-panels work and, 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 and the, the, the lobbying that takes place and the and the support and documentation and justification and all this. And it made perfect sense. I guess what hit home with us is when you think about the, the way that the firefighters approach this, that they literally, if they have to go with the brute force 
then what they're what they're doing is they're potentially putting live wires down on the ground. They're putting live equipment because again, there's no overcurrent protection typically that's going to go from the secondary side of the transformer utility down to the point of attachment to the structure. When they do that, those those wires could be and so they could be actually increasing the hazard if this is firefighting activity with water everywhere. And again, water is an insulator until it becomes impure. And then, of course, it's all impure. So then it becomes a conductive medium. We don't need to go into electrical 101 theory. But at the end of the day, it created more of a hazard. So the ability to be able to shut it off and attack the fire uh, directly to the dwelling um, puts the firefighters at less risk and everybody involved. Again, it's not a perfect world. Um, perfect would be something at the pole to kill it. But again, depending on where they're pad mounted or whether it's overhead, it, it makes it difficult. So this is the best you can get. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Paul, we're going to take a quick break to thank our show sponsor. And when we come back, we're going to talk about changes on the commercial side of our industry. There's a lot of uh, listeners here that are in the residential end and a lot of listeners in the commercial end. So we'll be right back. Throughout the program, but I'm excited to tell you about what's new on electricalcodeacademy.com uh, and .net and .org, as well as masterthenec.net.com and .org. That's a lot of domains, but either one you use, you check out our website. You can download your own app for your phone that gives you access to all of our interactive, our videos, our courses, all of that available on our website. But also, we have our residential, our commercial, our grounding and bonding, our industrial as well as our exam prep programs now all the programs are available in 2017 and 2020 nec editions except for the fast tracks which is going to be released on 525 of this year you'll have access to that as well but what we're really excited about is our bundle program we have a new bundle that we've released that's going to give you access for not only 12 months but now 24 months where you're going to have access to all of our 2020 editions. That's the residential, the commercial, the industrial wiring, the grounding and bonding, and of course, yes, our Fast Tracks program. Now, typically, each individual course costs $335, which would total up to $1,675. For this special time only, using a special bundle code, 2020 Bundle, you're going to get access to all of these programs for 24 months at a one low price of $899. But wait. If you act right now, up until June 30th of 2020, you can take an additional $150 off and get this entire package for $749. That is 24 months of unlimited access, 365, 24-7 to every course we have. Whether you want to get in-depth in the residential, commercial, industrial, maybe you want to learn grounding and bonding, or you just want to prepare for an exam or understand the National Electrical Code better, this new bundle is amazing, gives you access to all of our courses, as well as it gives you 24-month access to the literally thousands of programs that are available through Cengage, okay? So not only do you get our courses, but you get access to everything through this program. Amazing thing. So hopefully you'll check it out. And now let's get back to the program. Again, thanks for checking this out. And uh, again, awesome value. Let's get back to the program. All right, Paul, we're back and we're talking about the top changes for particular sections of the National Electrical Code as pertains to the 2020 updates. And let's dive into the commercial end of things. What do you got for us for the three big changes in commercial work? Okay. Um, well, the first one is probably going to impact more uh, design and the engineers. Uh, and again, there's a lot more questions revolving around this change when it comes to um, the application of 
determining the loads when it comes to things like the general lighting load. So one of the significant changes that took place uh, in the 2020 NEC was to table 220.12 for, and it previously gave a list of the unit load VA values that we use to calculate things like when we're in residential, we do three VA per square foot. And of course, dwelling units were listed in this table. Now that has been removed and the dwelling stuff has been moved over to its own section. And this is table is specifically for general lighting for non-dwellings. Um, now this is one where it might or might not impact cost as much. It's really gonna impact design in a sense that all of the values for VA per square foot have been redone and they're based on an ASHRAE model, which is uh, an engineering industry that looks at certain modeling for energy. And of course the energy code is, is infiltrating everything. We have their own energy code and green code. And, and so when looking at loads that produce in a building, especially now these um, non-dwelling applications like automobile facilities, convention centers, courthouses, dormitories, fire state, all those type of things, it was a reevaluation of the VA. Now, what is significant for you and me as, as electrician or the designer is that previously when we have loads that were considered continuous loads, say the lighting loads, and, and be honest with you, in a commercial building, everything is probably gonna be continuous load unless it's stated otherwise, except for receptacles, of course. They're general use type of things and nothing in the NEC requires me uh, to place receptacles in a commercial building, for example, except for maybe something for um, let's say signs or whatnot, but generally you put the receptacles where you want to put them, unlike the residential where the code tells us where they have to be in 210.52. So in here, when we're talking about continuous loads, they have now been factored into the VA value under table 220.12. So any here, you no longer have to think about the lighting load as a continuous load. If you're gonna do other than dwelling or non-dwelling applications, you simply pull straight from this, this table and that's gonna be your VA per square foot and it's already going to incorporate the 125% uh, multiplier for continuous load. It's already gonna be figured in so you don't have to do anything, anything different. Now, cost impact here is that some of them, the, the VAs decreased and of course, the more the VA, the, the, the service chain, obviously the size of the service is gonna be impacted or feeder. But in this case right here, it's been a give or take. So some of them were reduced and some of them were increased uh, in order to get the VA value. So I don't know, you know, again, with this one, it's, it's more or less the, the aspect of design. It's going to result in either larger services or smaller services, depending on the size. So kind of threw that in there because I think it's important because a lot of the stuff that we do, and I do a lot of exam prep and things like that, going into the 2020, people are ready to automatically just jump in there and throw the 125%. And it just needs you to know that with the VA, it's been incorporated into it. So again, when cost impact, it might benefit or might not. So I just kind of, this is impactful because we, we don't want people to do is to use the VA values here, not pay attention to the notes that are at the bottom of the table. And there's a difference between what's called an informational note and what's called a note because the note is germane to the table and it's applicable in the code. Whereas an informational note is just really good information, kind of like a roadmap. And I love informational notes because it's, you know, the NEC is not a learning document. It's not designed for those that aren't technical, but it does give us technical guys and gals the ability to maneuver through the code with good informational notes, but they're not enforceable. 
these notes that are at the bottom of this table are very much enforceable. Okay, so the redesign here is going to be impactful either way, depending on the prospect of the job. Engineers, designers, again, don't want to have somebody double hit a 125 for continuous load when it's not necessary because it's already factored into it. And I've already had some people confused over that, and they would have oversized things. And you can always be bigger, but it's not necessary to be bigger. It's, you know, there's diversity that's built into it. Sure. So if you're an electrical contractor out there that is uh, doing your own design and figuring um, for your estimating and for your bids, and you figure in that extra 125%, you're upsizing your service, you're upsizing your feeder, feeders, this might uh, keep you from, from winning that job where the, you know, somebody that is in tune to exactly what the code is saying for 2020 um, is going to be bidding their projects at the minimum code requirements and they'll win the bid because that could equate to, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of dollars for your service uh, conductors and your service equipment. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's just kind of one of those design things that stick out to you that you got to be aware of because we've been doing something for years a certain way. And now we're, we're shaking it up a little bit. You know, it's, Kind of like one change that we didn't, we're not going to talk about here, but that is the change to 310, which is dealing with conductors. That entire article has been redone, removed around, reshuffled. Hot medium voltage is no longer in there anymore. So again, it's more concise. So again, that's so important to be aware of these changes because they will impact how you do business, definitely. Sounds like you could probably do a whole episode on 310 and the restructure. I, well, you can, and I probably have. <laughs> um, yeah, if, well, if you, hey, if you have, I'd love to share that with the audience. So uh, let, me, let me know if there's somewhere I can direct them to, if you've already got something out there sure. in the works. YouTube.com forward slash master the NEC. And all of our videos and all podcasts are rebroadcast over there. So um, we have over, I got many years worth of material over there that you can listen to and watch. And that's awesome. And, uh, you know, I commend you on the quality of those productions over there for, um, you know, the amount of content that you put out there on a consistent basis. It's, uh, it's amazing what you have over there and the offer to the electrical community. Yep, definitely. So what do you have next? What do you have next for us? Okay, so the next one is one that's going to, you know, be a change. And, and the only reason I bring it up is because this one is one that's causing quite a bit of controversy. Uh, through all of our code circles of, of the folks that I deal with. And I brought this to the attention early on when it came out or we saw it. And of course, it's caught traction now by other folks and NFPA is looking at, everybody's looking at this one. And this is the one that's dealing when we're doing a load calculation and this is just, a, you know, the general uh, in the chapter, um, the calculations under 220 in chapter two, when you're doing part three for standard method, you come to what's called non-coincident loads under 220.60. So there's significant change. So we all know in the past that when you're doing a standard calculation, you're going to compare the heat versus the air conditioning. And when we're doing our calculation and whichever one results in a larger, you get rid of the one that's less. So you go with it because at any given time, if you go with the larger one and then you happen to be, let's say that's the heat and you're in the winter, then you base in your service or base your feeder, everything based on that. When you're in the summer and the air conditioning, which is less than the heat, then it's, again, it's not going to be higher than the heat. So you take it and you just discount the one that's the less. So we've been doing that for many, many, many years. Uh, and that's just one step and the multi-step when you're calculating a service. So the change here was that when you're dealing with non-coincident loads, you still do that same process. And the code says where it is unlikely 
that two or more non-coincident loads will be used simultaneously. And usually that's done through uh, the ability through, let's say, thermostatting or, or that, that really doesn't have the two. Now, again, I will give a caveat. If you don't know that they will that have a potential to not be used or can be used simultaneously, then you have a problem. You might have to consider both of them. However, if you can determine that they are not being used simultaneous, heat versus AC, for example, then you get to discount the one that's the less. So it shall be permitted to only use the largest loads that will be used at any one time when calculating the load for a feeder or service. So that's the genesis of 220.60 for the non-coincidental loads. However, the change that took place that's going to impact slightly, but again, depending if you're just on the bridge of being a certain size service, and then you throw this in here, this could literally throw you into another service size if you're just shy. And so the change was, and I'll quote now from the code, it says, where a motor is part of a non-coincidental load that is not the largest of the non-coincidental loads, 125% of the motor load shall be used in the calculation if it is the largest motor. So typically in a calculation, we always will take the largest motor, which is already incorporated into our calculation anyway, but we'll also, if it's one of the appliances, it's obviously calculated in there, but we'll add an additional 25% or we'll take that value of that motor at 125%. But what we're trying to capture is that additional 25%. Uh, that has been through the code forever. And again, that's pretty much in 220.50 gives us guidance on that. Now, the thing about this one is if I compare the heat to the AC, the way it reads in the rules, and I don't think that this is what they intended. So we're going to have to fix this, uh, but this is what it is written now. If I take the heat versus the AC and the heat is larger and I discount the AC, if the air condensing unit outside happens to be the largest motor because again, even though it falls under 440, if you go look at 220.50, it's gonna say that you treat that as the largest motor. If it is the largest motor, now I have to take that unit at 125% and add it to my heat value. So that's gonna potentially add a large amount of additional amps. It could be as much as 20, 30, even 40, depending on the size that gets thrown on top of your overall calculation, which could bump you into that means a different enclosure size. That means different wire sizes. It can be impactful. I don't know that they necessarily meant to do this because that motor is already attributed to the AC loads versus the heat, but that's the way the code is written right now in the 2020 NEC, and I'm sure that's going to have to be addressed. So that's, that's one that's causing quite a bit of controversy right now because it literally says that. If the AC was the lesser of the heat, but that AC air condensing unit outside or whatever, if that was the largest theoretical motor in the building, then I have to take that motor. It could be an air, you know, air compressor, but I could, well, air compressor, air AC outside unit, uh, the condensing unit, I could take that and I have to take that value at 125% and then add it to my heat. That's the way it reads right now. So again, that's going to be impactful. I'm not sure that's the way they wanted it to read, but that's the way it reads. And it's got to have the engineers going stir crazy too, figuring out this, um, you know, what, what type of equipment's going to be out there, what's, uh, what's more, what's less, and how that impacts the overall service, let alone the electricians that are, you know, trying to run their company and play, uh, you know, wear the engineer hat as well. So, Yeah, ironically with this one, you know, you could have easily included this in a residential because 
this is going to affect residential and commercial. And the reality is, where is it going to hit you dollar-wise the most? Probably the residential guy, because you have a, a proportional increase in product cost as you jump from size to size. And so you start jumping up, and the next thing you know, they're going to be uh, increasing. in so again, conductor sizes, equipment sizes, everything has to be thought out. And if you didn't think about this and an inspector or somebody knows this rule and they read it and they go, hmm, did you account for that? Now, if your largest motor is actually one of the other appliances or something else in there, then you then you, you already have that covered because that means the AC wouldn't have been the largest, you know. But again, uh, typically the outside air conditioning unit is probably one of the largest that would qualify as a motor uh, under 220.50. So, you know, probably what's going to be the case. And so we just have to look at this. And I'm sure something about this will be changed in 2023. Uh, or that was their intent. But we've talked to some of the co-panel members, and I don't think that was their intent, but we'll see. Interesting. Yeah, that uh, non-coincidental load article has been in there. You know, I've been in the trade since 1987, and that was a, a new code cycle back then. And I remember that uh, particular article being in there since then. I'm not sure when it was uh, incorporated into the NEC, but it's been there for a long time. Yeah, predates me and you, I'm sure. So again, <laughs> it just makes sense. If you have one load and it's not, and the other's not going to be on, and that's the greater of the loads, why would you not not use that load? So um, I personally don't believe the extra 125% is necessary in this case, but again, we'll see. All right, Paul. So number three, what do you got for us for on the commercial end for uh, significant code changes for commercial work? Okay, so this one here that we've got is probably going to be the one that, that is going to cause most people to go, what? I've done this for years. What are you telling me? It's a problem. And this is dealing with 230.71, the maximum number of disconnects. So let me paint you a picture, Jeff, uh, of, of how this was typically used. So I would go to a commercial building, and I would bring the service in, and I would hit a large cabinet, and in that cabinet, I would have six individual disconnects. And this was all the thing we refer to as the six disconnect rule. Um, obviously, it was also common in split buses and all this kind of stuff where we had the six and one of them fed a lower bus and things like that. But very common is to go in and have a big cabinet and inside of it have a panel board, which is the guts, really, uh, that, are, that go inside of a cabinet. Um, and you would have the six disconnect rule. And you would hit it. And that would be very common. And then we would go from there. Each breaker would feed other remote distribution panels or whatnot. And it was very common. In the 2020 National Electrical Code, that is no longer allowed. So you will not be able to hit, have a single enclosure, like a cabinet, and have six disconnects in it and meet the six disconnect rule. Now, there's some allowances. We didn't get rid of all of them. And I'll, and I'll discuss each one of them briefly. But... That just the biggest change to remember is you no longer can use that six disconnect rule in a single cabinet anymore. That is going to be quite costly because the alternatives are going to be something you might have already done, six individual enclosures. Uh, but if you're not prepared for that and you wanted to put just one enclosure with the uh, six breakers in it, and you're out of luck, not going to have not going to be able to do that. So that's a significant cost increase for designers who are even to this day. Are, and I get calls all the time about it. They're saying, I got to change this. I got to change this. And I'm like, well, not yet, but you will. Now, before I look at the items, I, I need to explain to everybody why we made this change, uh, why they made this change. Uh, typically, when you have the conductors coming in under the six disconnect rule, the conductors are coming into a main lug 
and they're coming in feeding the bus. And so that bus is live. There's no way to kill that power. So if somebody's working in an individual cabinet, that bus is always potentially exposed to contact. It's not the same if it's the back of a switch gear and it's running towards the back based on the design, or if it's isolated individual enclosures, like in a motor control center or something like that. Here, you're literally live with the buses in front of you as you're working in the enclosure. There's no way to kill it. So if you remove a breaker, you have a live bus. Uh, and so the concept here was, you know, you could just put a main breaker and you just totally defeating, put all the breakers you want in there based on size of the equipment and loads and calcs and all that stuff. But in order to use this main lug application and now have up to six breakers in there, which is no longer allowed, uh, it was because we didn't have a way of killing power to the bus so people could work on it. And that was a significant hazard. Now I have people that call me and say, hey, we've been doing this for 50 years and ain't nobody died yet. And I'm like, well, I don't know. Uh, sometimes the, that doesn't make it to the forefront. Uh, the quickest thing to get in the code change is to kill somebody. But at the end of the day, this was, a lot of people get shocked and can be uh, more catastrophic than actually being electrocuted. Uh, getting in a condition where you can't hold your child anymore, or you can't do things with your family, uh, because of, of a serious condition where you have a, a live bus and you come in con all these type of things are, I think in my case, the best alternative would have been death to think that I have to go through life and, and be, uh, not have the ability to, to hold my loved ones or interact and play ball or so. So, I mean, that's why I'm so big on NFPA 70 E for safety as well, because I think we get real complacent in this industry. So this is, uh, we get really good. We get fancy. We become super attrition. And what happens is, we think that it can't affect us and it only takes a 10th of an amp to kill you. So that circuit on the countertop, I tell people in seminars, Jeff, they say, why does the, why do we use 50,000 volts for the state to electrocute people? I said, that's because shock and awe. We like to see the eyes pop out and everything happen. Reality is I can take care of you just as quick with a 15 amp circuit. As long as I bond and connect to you, right? I can make it happen and save the state a lot of money. But at the end of the day, it's, it's all about the shock and all. Reality is, and again, it only takes a tenth of an amp to kill you. That's why GFCIs are so important uh, in that aspect. So anyway, that's the safety aspect, okay, of why, why it was done. I was guessing that it was driven by uh, NFPA 70E. Yes. One of the aspects that presented it, to, it was definitely based on that. Now, let's look at this. Now, this is broken into two parts, okay? There's, a, there's an A and there's a B. Uh, a is your general. And this is important that we talk about 230.71 as far as the maximum number disconnects because uh, you still have the maximum number of six, okay, to any, to any one service that permitted by 230.2, which 230.2 is going to give you a list of the number of services that you can have to a building, typically one, but there are also some conditions that would allow you like characteristic differences, capacity differences that allow you to have more than one service to a building. However, for that one service that's supplying a building, you can't have more than six disconnects, okay? And they have to be grouped. 230.72 is a grouping requirement. But when we're talking about the number, 230.71's charging statement says, each service shall have only one disconnection means unless the requirements of 230.71B are met. And B is going to be the one, the two to six disconnect means. And that's what we'll kind of go over those briefly because those are all kind of changes a little bit. Now, the general rule here is saying because you need to count six or have up to six, there are certain things that you don't consider service disconnects. 
power monitor equipment disconnect. I mean, I don't want to have an inspector come and look at six disconnects and then see a seventh for power monitoring, surge protection, uh, control circuits for a GFP protection, or even a power operable disconnection means, which is not technically the service disconnection means. Uh, it might be a power operable remote service disconnection means. But just because I see seven things there, they might not all be service disconnects that the six might be and that doesn't. So I don't want anybody seeing seven and immediately just failing saying that's a violation of, of 230.71. Okay. So there's a list of things that aren't considered service disconnects. Okay. So that's established and that's not new. What is new now again is the removal of, like we said, the six inside of one enclosure. So what 230.71B states, and it's a dealing with two to six service disconnection means, it says the two to six disconnection means shall be permitted, and it's a permissive statement, it doesn't say shall be required, it's, you get a couple options here, for each service permitted by 230.2, or for each set of service entrance conductors permitted by 230.40, exception one, three, four, and five, which of these are exceptions to allow service entrance conductors to run outside of the building and extend. We see this very common on multifamily dwellings where you have the service drop, it comes to one location, and then it branches off to service entrance conductors that run around to the individual units. As long as they're outside of the building, they're probably meeting one of the allowances of 230.40 exceptions, okay? Interesting rule uh, and, and to, to understand that. So again, that gets kind of deep, but we love to explain that one. We're not gonna do it today, okay? It says the two to six service disconnection means shall be permitted to consist of a combination of any of the following. So you have four items here. The first one says, look, if you have a, an enclosure and it has a main service disconnect, then you're good. And it's like a main breaker in a panel. I could have six panels right there, or I could have six individual service disconnects with just a breaker in it, and that's all that's in there, maybe feeding through it, and now I'm gonna put a remote panel further into the building. So these are outside service disc, and all it is is a breaker in it. I can have up to six of those grouped in one location, and I'm perfectly okay because each one of them is one of the six. So they're not all in one cabinet. They're in their own separate cabinet. The second option is panel boards with the main service disconnection means, like I kind of just said. So I could have six panels grouped in one location with the main breaker and you're good to go. That's perfectly fine. The third option is switchboards, where there is only one service disconnect in each separate vertical section, okay? and there's barriers that separate it. So a lot of the larger switchboards will have certain components in the switchboard, which is basically like a big, big panel, and it has separate metal dividers. And as long, you can have multiple vertical sections dealing with different things in this one big piece of equipment, as long as each vertical section has its own breaker, main breaker, then you're good to go. You still can use those type of systems. It's not a problem. And then the last one is service disconnects in switch gear or in meter centers. This is very common. So I get this question, well, how is this going to impact me at a multifamily that has a service coming down, let's say an overhead coming down to a wireway, and then it drops down, let's say, into a meter center. Well, each one of those meter centers usually have their own enclosure and they have their own main breaker in there. That's okay. You still can't have more than six unless you have one big main breaker and then you can have whatever number of separate meters you want. But again, for the most part, for the stuff that we deal with, when you're dealing with those small multifamilies, you might have a two, four, five, or six uh, meter stack 
Well, they're going to have individual enclosures with the meter in it and its own breaker. And that would also would qualify and be okay to do that. That's not, not going to be a problem. So this is a significant cost impact. Uh, but again, it might be something you're already designing that way anyway. So. Yeah. And if an engineer, uh, hopefully the engineers pick up on this. And if, if they didn't, then, uh, you know, now our audience knows what to look for to make sure they can call out their engineers. Cause imagine, you know, bidding on a job for how it was designed and, you know, missing out on this because the engineer missed it as well. So definitely something to look out for even on your engineered plans. Oh yeah, definitely. And it's going to impact the commercial and industrial huge because they are I can tell you most of the data centers that are done, most of the large commercial industrial are so used to doing the single cabinet with the panel board in it and using the six disconnect rule. They would hit that and then they would branch out to other panels in the facility. That practice ends now for the 2020. So that's going to be huge. And manufacturers are going to have to scramble because they know that that equipment's not going to be compliant anymore with the 2020. So again, you can go with the individuals, but it takes up space I have to have six separate disconnects in one location. That, that takes up space. It was easier to put it in one cabinet and be able to achieve this goal. So again, designing is going to have to take, a, take into account. Definitely. So some, uh, some major communication is needed here between the NFPA changes and the architects, the engineers, the manufacturers, um, and the owners of projects. Absolutely. Yep, Absolutely. For sure. And again, this is, these are just some of the changes. I mean, there's literally hundreds and hundreds of changes that can impact your, your bottom line, you know, safety, whatever that's in the 2020. Obviously, I'm biased of the 2020, serving on co-panel, but I was on 17 as well um, and 14. So the reality is we have come a long way, and 2020 code is, is, is really going to do a good job of cleaning up some of those issues. Doesn't mean we have nothing to change. I've got over 30 public inputs already submitted for the 2023. So we're getting ready to do it again in about eight months. We're going to start working on the 2023 and try to fix all those things that we didn't fix. That's again, probably a misconception that people think about co-panel members is that we go and create the code. We're not, we just simply go what's submitted and we'll massage it but if you don't justify it, it can't make it into the code. If you don't validate it, it doesn't make it in there. So we're not in there just adding stuff. We're in there looking at what people have submitted and we're looking at, we don't go randomly looking at other sections of the code to fix things. We don't have the time. We don't have enough time there. So we kind of, kind of focus and that's what we're, that's why we have changes every time. Good thing uh, the cycles are only in, uh, you know, a three year period, <laughs> not every year. Imagine that. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure that, 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 that we could participate in that. That's so much involved in it. There's just not enough time. So what is the specific panel that you sit on, Paul? I sit on code panel, panel 5 and 17. So code panel 5 deals with my area of specialty, which is obviously grounding and bonding and, 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 and dealing with Article 200 as well, grounded conductor applications. And then, of course, 17, pools, spas, hot tubs, appliances, which 422, 680, 682, natural bodies of water. Uh, and... and cover all of those scopes in there so excellent yeah and and um you know major part of the uh you know code and design as far as you know swimming pools not just residential but hotels and uh, water parks and uh you know fountains for you know a lot of people think of uh fountains with you know just a small residential fountain but you got to think of like fountains at mgm grand mm -hmm. and uh you know large large places like that yeah, things that people didn't think about, splash pads. You know, nobody addressed these splash pads. And so now 
we had to adapt as a code panel and address splash pads and all those type of things, wading pools, baptismal pools. And I mean, just all these things have to be taken into consideration. So it used to be thought of that Code Panel 17 was, was a very tight little group of, of individuals. And now it's then grown. For example, GFCI requirements, it used to be that dishwashers and dwellings were GFCI. Now that's been removed over to, to Code Panel 17 under 422.5. Now it applies to all dishwashers, not just dwellings. So again, that's just a change that if you're not aware of, you know, that it basically can cost you, cost you money and time. And, and again, we only get paid to install it once. I teach people this all the time. I get paid to install it once. I don't get paid to install it twice. And if I have to install it twice because of my ignorance, shame on me. Uh, if, if I have to install it twice because of an inspector's ignorance, shame on them. So. Absolutely. So quick question on the code panels. The NEC um, gets thicker and thicker every year. How many uh, total members uh, on the code panels? Do you have a guess or, or a specific number? Um, How many people are involved in, um, you know, updating, maintaining? Okay. Well, I can tell you right now in, in the background, they're literally probably over 1500 people in the process, whether it's the NFPA folks who, by the way, do an amazing job at what they do, but there's 18 code panels. And of the code panels, I would guess it can be anywhere from 12 to 16 people on each code panel. And then we have what's called correlating committees that people on that. And so it's a lot of people involved in it. There's just no way that, you know, all this stuff and, and people ask, why does that code book get thicker? Uh, I don't know that technically it's getting that much thicker. It's getting bigger, but I don't know about thicker. Um, from when I started, which was just a little one you could put in your pocket. Um, I think it's because uh, we learn from our habits. We learn from our mistakes. We learn from progress. We learn from advancement. And slowly, we didn't know what we didn't know. So once we start knowing what we know, that's when it gets into that code book. And again, it's not the code panel people that do that. It's people like you and me that, that, that you know, and others that don't sit on code because anybody can submit a chain. Here's, here's a little thing, Jeff, I tell everybody. If you don't like the NEC or you don't like what it says, talk to the hand because it means nothing to me. If you want to get change, you need to be active and make change. And everybody out there can send a code proposal, which now we call them public inputs, and you can submit it for free. Just go to nfpa.org, get a free account, and you can log in and you can submit a change, but just be prepared to substantiate it. Because if it's not substantiated and you don't prove it and just say you don't like something, we can tell you right now, and I'll tell you, and I'll speak for the code panels, I'll tell you what filing cabinet we're going to file that in. That's the round one at the end of the table that gets dumped every night. That's the one we're filing it in. You have to substantiate it. You just can't say you don't like something. So, again, you can hate the code. You cannot like the code. It is a minimum safety standard. If you go to court or if you get sued, you better be able to stand on that document if you get there because that is the minimum safety standard. And an expert like me or somebody will come in there, and if you didn't follow it, depending on who gets to us quicker and who has the deeper pockets, we're going to make sure you look foolish. So just follow the code. It is a powerful, powerful document in the backbone of our industry and, you know, the, the way that many, many people like yourself uh, make a living in our industry and proving once again how diverse our industry is. If you don't like being out there as an installer, you don't like the residential market, you don't like the commercial market, get into the code industry, get into Absolutely. manufacturing. There's so many avenues for electricians to, you know, diversify their trade. 
No, like I said, they can they can get in. They can even take their further and, and even get into our CMECP program and, and take their code knowledge to the next level. It's different avenues they can go into always. That's awesome. Paul, I appreciate your expertise. And, um, you know, for those of our listeners that don't know where to find you, give it to us. Where can we find you? Sure. Now, you can find out about all the courses we offer, which is residential, commercial, industrial, grounding and bonding, uh, exam preparation, which is probably what we're known most for, our Fast Tracks program, all at www.mastertheNEC.com or electricalcodeacademy.com. Uh, and if you want to watch our videos, we do literally hundreds and hundreds of hours of videos over on our YouTube channel, just youtube.com forward slash master the NEC. But anywhere in there, you can find all our social media intertwined with all of that. That's uh, probably the best places to find out about what we have to offer. And you're on Facebook, you're on Instagram and LinkedIn as well. Yep. We're on LinkedIn as well. Uh, again, that's more the business platform, but we're on there. Um, and uh, you, usually I get, you know, Hundreds of code questions sent to me a week. I do my best to answer them personally, uh, the, the best I can, uh, quickest I can. But we, yeah, we get through the, the master, the NEC. We even have an exam prep uh, forum that is just tailored to exam prep for those that are really struggling to, to get their license. Again, we want to make sure they achieve success and go to the next level. So again, that would just be our master, the NEC exam prep. Just search for that on, on uh, the Facebook and you'll find it. So other than uh, social media, tell us about your, uh, your weekly live program. Yeah. So electrician live. Um, yeah, that's been a kind of a, uh, a love hate deal with me. Um, technology, technologically challenged, if you will, when it comes to making sure that's a live show, most of the things, as you know, podcasts and things are recorded. Uh, but the live show every week at 8 PM central standard time, uh, you can watch it on electricianlive.com live stream, or you can go over to the YouTube channel and again, the concept was uh, started out to be uh, not be so code driven, but being a code guy, I can't help but be drawn back into code. And so, but the concept of that is just a weekly interactive with electricians that is kind of lighthearted, be able to have a discussion uh, about code topics, similar to what you, what you do here, in, you know, in this type of format. Um, but again, every week and uh, uh, hopefully have additional guests. We're having upgrades to it and a new, uh, I like to say my supercomputer is coming in a couple weeks and multi cameras and all this stuff to help integrate it and get all the bugs worked out of it. But it's been, it's been going pretty good. Can't, can't complain. That's awesome. So uh, they can find you on YouTube at master the NEC and check out NEC uh, master uh, electrician live uh, every Saturday night. Yep. Every Saturday night at 8 PM central standard time, they can, they can join us. Awesome. Well, Three Phase Radio uh, is focused on leadership, Paul, and I'm grateful to have a leader like yourself and a code expert here on our program, and I look forward to joining you on your program someday. It looks good. I, I enjoyed, uh, enjoyed being here. I think it's uh, you do great stuff here, and uh, I even listen to the podcast, so and I'm enjoying them, and uh, I encourage others to listen to it as well, So, and we look forward to getting you over on our show as well. I know how busy of a guy you are, so I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to Three Phase Radio. I enjoy it. All right, Paul, take care, and uh, I hope that uh, you have a wonderful rest of your day and uh, appreciate you bringing value to the electricians across the good old U.S. of A. My pleasure. I enjoy doing it. I love to see people succeed. love to see electricians get to the next level, so it's just uh, part of the everyday course, so I appreciate it. That's, that's what we're all about. Wow, what a great episode. It was awesome spending some time with Jeffrey Mort. If you don't uh, know who Jeffrey Mort is, or you hadn't had the opportunity to visit his podcast or his website, go to threephaseradio.com and check him out. 
really good set of podcasts on leadership and uh, learn from his mistakes as he talks to you about things that he's done in the past and how he's moving forward. He's an electrician like me and you. Uh, and again, I want to thank all of you for joining us each week here, Saturday evening at 8 p.m. Central Standard Time for these Electrician Live uh, shows. And hopefully you'll come back next week. We'll have a great special show. So always visit electricianlive.com to see what's coming up for the next week's episode. Till then, stay safe and God bless. You've been listening to Electrician Live with your host, Paul 